You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All the way to the end of chapter 3. So I hope you're buckling in for the, for the whole ride, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us uh, a while. But uh, I've been blessed just... Um, even kind of reading through and reading ahead and, and, uh, and preparing, it's been a great joy to do this, and I'm finding it very helpful uh, for my soul. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad that you have carved out time to, to dive into Scripture with us this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to step into today's message. Uh, God of grace, I want to welcome you here this morning, and I am... I am well aware that there are many of us coming from all different kind of areas of life. There are some of us coming here with the joy of new life, and we celebrate with them. God, there are also some who have come today with burden and concern, and we lament and we pray and we encourage them. God, we have just sung about you being our foundation, about us having a greater view and an understanding of our reality because our reality takes place in the beautiful narrative that you're telling. And so, Father, however people have come here this morning with whatever struggle and with whatever burden, I pray they would sense your presence. I pray they would firmly rest themselves in you as their greatest refuge as their greatest strength, as their greatest shield. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, for your life, death, and resurrection, which changes every story we come here with, which inspires us to worship, which inspires us when life is difficult and burden is heavy, to yoke ourselves to you and put one foot in front of the other because we know where this journey is heading. We thank you for that. May it bring perspective to our lives this morning. May it enlighten scripture to us as we... we Dig into the word, not because we want to have more head knowledge, but we want to know you more intimately. And so whatever you're going to ask of us this morning, through your word, we say we will do it. We will trust you, and we will do it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, throughout the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus interacting with different groups of people. We see disciples, we see the scribes, we see the Pharisees, we see eventually kings interacting with Jesus, representatives of Rome. We see the sick. We see the shamed. We see the outcasts. We see the prominent. You might fit into some of these areas. You might feel some of these even this morning as they encounter Jesus. And each of them needs to make the choice as they encounter Jesus. They need to answer the question of who they believe Jesus to be. When he speaks, when they witness his, his miracles. And the position of scripture is that, um, that we can either decide now how we're going to respond to Jesus or some other day. But it would be best if it was now. That's what scripture tells us. There will be a time where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And it would do, our lives will be much simpler. <laughs> well, our lives will be much more uh, secure and, found, and, and firmly founded if we proclaim him as Lord now. But we need to answer that question and we need to respond. Who we think Jesus is will have a direct effect on what kind of relationship we will, uh, we will have with him and whether or not we will allow him to work in us and through us. So what do you think of Jesus this morning? 
Because some of us might come in and some of us might even come in and say, oh yeah, no, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. Um, but in reality, we think of him as a, a good teacher with some good advice. And so when it, when it works out, I'll use that advice. <laughs> when, it gets, when it causes a lot of friction, I might put that advice on hold. But who we think Jesus is will have a direct effect on what kind of relationship we will have with him, how we will allow him to, to move in our lives. C.S. Lewis has a, a very famous saying, which I've used before in sermons, but it helps us frame the sermon today. Can we pop that up there? The next one? There we go. People, he's writing this in his book, Mere Christianity. People often say about him, Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall on, at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Those are great words. Clearly stated. Lewis says, Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, and he is worthy of your life. Lewis was not the first person to, to, to kind of post these ideas. There were other authors before him that offered what people call the trilemma. And in Jesus' day, there were those who pushed these same ideas as well. Is he a prophet? Is he a charismatic religious leader? Is he a political rebel? Is he a misguided lunatic? Or is he who he said he was and what scripture proclaims him to be? Because if he is who he said he was, it'll drastically change how we worship and how we live our lives. How we engage with the political and ideological environment of our day will be changed. How we deal with our family, how we deal with illness, how do we deal with celebrations will all be changed. So leading us into today's text, Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples in verses 13 to 19 of, of chapter 3. And so for three years, these disciples follow Jesus. And they will, they'll hear his teachings. They'll watch him heal. They'll hear him proclaim the kingdom. They will see him interact with a broken people. They'll see him interact with powerful people. They'll see him interact with religious and political power. And they will learn who he is by what he says and what he does. In verse 20 of chapter 3, it says he's headed home. That's what we've talked about before is a town called Capernaum in Galilee. And they are ready to get a crash course in what it means to be followers of Jesus. Which means that Mark's readers were getting a crash course in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Which means you and I this morning are getting a crash course in what it means when Jesus calls us. In Mark chapter 3, we're going to read verses 20 to 35. Out of respect for God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand. The Gospel of Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to the end of the chapter. The word of God to us this morning. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, big surprise, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in, his par in a parable, 
in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and what, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brother are, are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You guys can take a seat. Well, right off the bat, we get this, this understanding that maybe Jesus is crazy. <laughs> maybe he is a lunatic. Jesus' family is concerned. <laughs> And, and before we judge them, imagine if your sibling or your son or daughter all of a sudden said they were the son or daughter of the living God. And you live in an extremely religious community. This is going to get a lot of it. This won't be dismissed. This will get a lot of attention. You can understand why this would be something that would concern them. So here we have Jesus' family. And what do they think? They think he's crazy. They've come to seize him. It says, in verse 21, when it says seize him, that's not grab him by the hand and, hey, Jesus, let's go home. The language there is the same language of John the Baptist being taken to prison. It's the same, same Greek as when Jesus is taken from Gethsemane to be taken on trial. So his family is so concerned they are going to take him by force and get him out of there. And while they are on their way there, the scribes, who we've witnessed before, who are frustrated that Jesus is getting attention in spite of his miracles, in spite of the healings, in spite of the, the, the forgiveness that he's offered, this proclamation that God is at work, are throwing everything they can at him, trying to discredit Jesus. And what they're doing is they're saying, crowd, do not follow this man. Listen to us. We are the scribes. You know us. You trust us. Do not follow this man. And so they associate him with the devil. Now, why would they do that? Why would they, do, why would they call Jesus Beelzebub? Well, because whoever we think Jesus is will have a direct effect on what kind of relationship we're going to have with him and whether or not we will allow him to work in us and through us. So if we dismiss him, we don't have to listen to him. The scribes take the idea that possibly Jesus is a liar. He may not be crazy, he's just evil. So stay away from him. Not only that, he is associated with the father of lies. They say to the crowd, this guy is possessed by Beelzebub. That is such a, I know, I know it's supposed to have an evil feeling, but it's a fun word to say. Beelzebub. Elijah is a better name for a child, but. They say to the crowd, this guy is in cahoots 
with Beelzebub. Now, if, if some of you know your Old Testament, Beelzebub was the god of the Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. By the time we got to Jesus' uh, day, Beelzebub was associated with Satan himself, with the devil, with darkness. He was the god of the enemy. Don't follow this guy. He is working with the god of the enemy. There's no question Jesus has power. There's no, there's no question there's, there's something spiritual going on. The scribes see Jesus' work as, as spiritual. That can't be denied. There's healings going on, all sorts of things. But they, can't, they do not want to say that it has to do with God. So they'll be, ah, he's, uh, he's with the devil. That's it. Don't follow this guy. Satan, the ruler of demons, is giving this man power. We can't just read over that and think that's nothing. For these men to say this to the son of the living God who is proving himself to be the son of the living God, he is doing work of the devil. What the scene does is it, it shows the, the desperate condition of the scribes throughout the Gospels. This is a natural result of having an argument, of not wanting to argue, just shut people down, name-calling, vilifying. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, uh, but we live in a culture and a society that can get a little heated. No? Okay, I'm just... Just, sorry, I'm just checking Twitter. It would take a 30-second glance online and you will see division. And division made easy. Politics, COVID, masks, truckers, freedom convoys. And I'm not going to tell you what side I'm on. Because I know we have people here on both sides of the aisle, and we are called to have a political affiliation with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, first and foremost. So before you act, we act like cornered animals. Let's remember, people without hope act like cornered animals. Not people who know the story. Sadly, you and I have both witnessed venom and vitriol thrown by Christians who are called to pray for and love their enemies. And we see Christians often throwing this stuff out as easily as people who have no hope, who have no such conviction. Because once a label, once we label someone as degenerate and evil, we can do whatever we want to them because they're not a human anymore. We can talk about them however we want. We can post whatever we want because they are evil and they deserve whatever comes their way. Our world today, politically charged and strengthened by a media that make money after, uh, off making people angry and afraid and distressed, it does all it can to tribalize and divide. And many today have fallen for it. We have traded the theology of humanity being made in the image of God and the, the, the practical conclusion that we ought to treat all with dignity and love and compassion, and we've traded it in for the way the world fights. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 31 says, But I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus was specifically talking about the Romans pushing down on the Jewish people. But we have traded this understanding so quick to just fire shots from our iPhones. 
Why? Because then we don't have to engage. If we make the other person the villain, we, they're, they're, they're so evil, they're beyond our love. That could not be further from a Christ-like action. However, it's, it is found in Scripture. So if, if you're not found to associate with this idea of loving our enemies, don't worry, there still are people like you in Scripture. <laughs> they're called the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> It's the mindset of these kinds of people, those who opposed Jesus and just wanted to shut him up. Why? Why shut him up? Why vilify him? Because who we think Jesus is will have a direct effect on what kind of relationship we will have with him and whether or not we will allow him to work in us and through us. This is dark stuff that these scribes do. Please grab the spiritual connection, the theological connection, that we are to treat others in the image of God. So therefore, if we are to treat others in the image of God, when we spew hatred towards them, there is a way we are spewing it towards God and his creation. Don't overlook that. When you do good to others, it's as if you've done it to me, Jesus says. And we are called to pray and love our enemies, to pray blessing on our enemies. And I don't care if you've been watching Parliament TV. You pick whatever side you want. Pick the truckers or those against the truckers. I don't care. Whoever is your enemy, pray that God will bless them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And let the Spirit of God start doing some work on our hearts. That wasn't even in my notes. That's free. (laughs) Imagine if these scribes got a hold of Instagram or Twitter. Imagine what they would be spewing out towards Jesus. The memes they'd be coming up with. That's the blindness that comes from denying God's work and denying God want to work in our hearts, calling truth a lie and lie the truth. God made this warning years before, centuries before, through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You who manipulate to gain power, who lie to take advantage. And so kind of like, kind of like a, a dad, Jesus turns towards these scribes, kind of like a, trying to explain to little kids. He says, come around. Let's have a, let's have a story time. Let's, tell, let's have a parable. Verse 23, he calls them. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? Do you understand how power works? Is Satan punching himself in the face? If that's what you're saying, then it would appear that Satan is in some big trouble. His time is coming to an end. Verse 26, he says, And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So what I'm doing is not a sign that I'm in league with the devil. It's proof that I'm taking care of his mess. His reign is done. It's more like Jesus is grabbing the devil's hand and goes, Stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. Verse 27, Satan has been bound. He talks about a strong man. He talks about a thief who is, that nobody can stand against, who has stolen everything he wants. He's put it in a storehouse, and he's just standing there with his arms crossed saying, you just try to take it back. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing is possible because I've tied, I've tied up that strong man. 
That, that devil who you feared, the Satan who has had power, I am taking it away from you. I've tied it up. He has no power over me, and I'm taking back what he stole. Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says, You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It wasn't only the New Testament writers that looked at the, the, the Satan as someone who stole life. There, was, there were a handful of writings during the time, just the centuries before Jesus, that spoke into this understanding. That Jews believed that the, the goal of the devil was to pull nations into worshiping false gods and ideologies, convincing them to pursue pleasure and greed over generosity. All of these things which kept humanity from walking in the blessing of God. Jesus is saying, it's as if the devil, the straw man, stole life from my people and he has it all stored and I've come, I've bound him up and I'm taking it back. When I do all these things, I'm pointing to the fact that I am far more powerful than Satan, that his reign is coming to the end and that it is time to decide whose house you are going to associate with. Or you still want to live there even though I've bound him or are you going to come out into new life? Because as for now, in your accusation, you are associating with a very, very dark power when you accuse me of associating with that power. That is a dangerous place to walk. I tell you the truth, Jesus says in verse 28. It says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus is giving a very powerful warning here. He's basically saying to the scribes, be very careful because this path you are walking is very dangerous. When our kids were younger, and we would explain, um, we, we would explain to them that there were certain things they are not to do, or even specific moments, don't do that, and you do the one, two, three, or we all have our different methods. You'll learn. We'll all have our different methods. But the one method that tended to help after a while was the head tilt stare, which looked like this. <laughs> it was the look that said, I've told you what to do. I don't think it's sticking. <laughs> and you're about to do something you should not do and cross a line. You should not cross. It worked. It was quite effective. That is... That is an important uh, tool to implement at times. The head tilt stare says, you know what I said. I've warned you. <laughs> you better stop. You are about to cross a very difficult, dangerous line. Your next move could have implications for the rest of your life. <laughs> Jesus is doing the head tilt stare here to the scribes. <laughs> he goes, uh, you've seen what I've done? You've heard what I've said. You've heard what I've proclaimed. Do you really want to say that? You are in very real danger of crossing into an unforgivable sin. Now, why is Jesus being so harsh? Now, how many people here grew up in the church and this was a scary verse? Anyone? <laughs> okay. And myself as well. 
He's speaking specifically here to the scribes. Their job was to be the gatekeepers of all that was true about God, all that was true about the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically the Torah, the law, to interpret and implement the Hebrew Scriptures to guide the people of Israel to proper worship and life and belief about God. And right now, they are saying, do not listen to this man. Do not listen to the Son, he who claims to be the Son of God. They've been given evidence. They've seen healing. They've seen demons running away. And oh, by the way, demons running away proclaiming, you are the son of the living God. But the scribes will not. Bringing life. And then they attribute it to Satan. And everyone is watching them to see how they're going to respond to Jesus. Everyone is looking at them to say, how should we respond to this man? So they're in a very important position. And in essence, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God has arrived. He's inviting people to come to him. And the scribes are telling everyone to run away from him. This text has frightened many Christians (laughs) throughout the centuries. Many people I know and many people I know and love have been deeply troubled by these words of Jesus to the point of deep anxiety, deep fear, mostly because on first reading, it's so vague. Often it's taken out of context. Often it's been applied, flippantly applied. Hurtfully thrown at people. How do I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What does that mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It sounds so definite. What could it possibly mean? Does it mean denying Jesus when my friends ask me if I'm a Christian? Does it mean um, if I have these habits that I'm just having a hard time getting out of? Does it mean using God's name as a swear word? If I don't know what it is, how can I know whether or not I've committed it? And many Christians have worried about that. One very popular interpretation is that the great unforgivable, unforgivable sin is suicide. Making someone believe that those they have lost to suicide are eternally condemned. That is not what Jesus is saying. Not even close. First of all, he's not talking to us. We always have to remember that scripture is for us, but it was not originally written to us. So we must look at the context. He is talking to a very specific group of people who are actively fighting against his ministry and calling God Satan. Calling Jesus a liar. Can they find forgiveness if they recognize who Jesus is? Yes, of course. What Jesus is saying is you cannot continue to reject Jesus and think that forgiveness is going to flow easily from God the Father. Those two things. You can't call call me Satan and think that my forgiveness is going to naturally flow to you. You don't even want it. He's not suggesting that if one point in your life you fail to recognize Jesus' work, or you have a sin problem, or you fail, you are in danger of an unpardonable sin. That is not what Jesus is saying. And let me see this. Those who have committed and are committing the unpardonable sin do not care. And those who are afraid that they've committed the unpardonable sin have not. It's that simple. You're not out of the family. Jesus has not wanted to kick anybody out of the family. There's no sin you've committed that says you are out. I don't care what you're walking in here with. It is not the unforgivable sin if you're concerned about it. Whatever it is, give it to him today. Ask for forgiveness and move on in life unbound to it. New Testament scholar Tim Gombas 
says this. He says, God is far more gracious than we can imagine, far more loving and forgiving than we can grasp, and infinitely more eager to restore, cleanse, redeem, and bless sinners than we ever could be. It's good to know, isn't it? I'm glad to hear that. All are invited in. But Jesus intimately connects being a part of his family with allowing his lordship, allowing real influence in our lives. This is one thing that we hear over and over in the gospel of Mark. And that's one of the reasons the gospel was written. To people who who are fine to just give lip service to Jesus and just live their lives as they want. The gospel of Mark is, is is a call to true discipleship, to obedience, to call him Lord. And let all the implications of calling him Lord infiltrate and animate our lives. So will you call me Lord? Is your desire to live under my lordship and in my family in a pattern of obedience and faith? That is the question. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear who is in his family in Mark 3.31. He says, and his mother and his brother came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And you'd think like any good son, he would go running out. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is not a shot against his family. He's not putting down Mary. He's not putting down his brother James or whoever else was there. It is what's called a teaching moment. It's all it is. It's a teaching moment. Who is my family? Well, he's saying it's not lineage. For you and I, it's not denomination. It's not our social credentials. It's not education. It's not your morality as good as it is. It's those who are eager to do what God says. That's the family trait. That's what what makes us look like we're part of the family. Not even those who perfectly do. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But those who desire to listen and respond, those who sit at the feet of Jesus and go, I want to be obedient to God the Father. Those are the people who are identified as being part of Jesus' family. I'll tell you, going back to to politics and the way many Christians have have bought into the the movements of the world and the anger and the fear and the hatred. I mean, let's just be honest, the hatred. There's a real lack of allowing Jesus to be Lord. And when I think of the family traits that we're called to, those are not the family traits. To pray for those who persecute us, to love those who hate us. Those are the family traits. So are we going to be obedient and look a lot like our father? One of the, the, the best, greatest things that people can tell me is that my children look like me, usually. <laughs> or they act like me, usually. <laughs> that one's a harder one. <laughs> Sometimes I'm very glad to hear that they act like me. <laughs> Sometimes I have to correct them on that. <laughs> I always tell my, and you guys know how, how, effect, how much affection I had for my dad. I always tell my son, my dad was here, I'm here, and you need to bring it up <laughs> somewhere. But the call for you and I, if we are going to call Jesus our Lord, is to take on the traits and the practices and the heart of God the Father. So that we all look a lot more like the portrait of God the Father. We all look like we have the same genetics, spiritual genetics. 
When you look at a picture of a family, you usually see similarities. It's not perfection, but it's a desire to follow, to look like Jesus, to look like our brother Jesus, to look like our father God. It's a life that follows family values and and lives in honor of the father to work on those traits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Imagine if the Christian family took all of those traits on. When you engage this week on social media, when you engage this week, even watching news or discussing politics, please have these family traits in mind. Love, joy, peace. Oh, please bring us peace. Patience? What, what is that? I've never even heard of it. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control whenever you agree with them. No, it doesn't say that. Always. For our enemies. That's what the family looks like. That's what it looks like to call Jesus Lord. We take those traits on by hanging out with him more. And we take them on by hanging out with the family. (laughs) By walking in the story as a family. With our brothers and sisters. With God the Father. Oh, my heart breaks every week, you know, and I get caught up in it myself. We get so caught up. We get so afraid and we, we throw our little emotional grenades from behind our devices. Let's throw some love and joy and peace. Or just sh- patiently shut up. <laughs> That's what we're left with this morning. Who is Jesus? Whatever we say, whatever we believe about Jesus is going to animate how we live our lives. Whether we're going to live them in fear or anger. Whether we are going to throw labels on people so that we don't have to engage with them. Because they're so evil, why would we bother? Or whether we're going to take on the traits of the family and look a lot like our brother Jesus. And look a lot like God the Father who is always offering forgiveness, who is always offering open arms for prodigals who return, who always runs towards us. We can dismiss him. We can think he's crazy. (laughs) Because if we think he's crazy, it's really easy for us to dismiss him. (laughs) Or we try to make him out as a liar since... If we're getting frightened and angry, then we must think he's a liar because he said he came to bring life and life more abundantly. So we must not believe him if we're going to continue to not, not, just, not just be sad sometimes, not just to be angered by things, but to dive into things that we know are going to make us more angry. That's the crazy thing. We are diving into things that we know will make us more angry, more scared. We're eating it like McDonald's fries. And it probably has the same, spiritually it does the same thing as McDonald's fries do to our bodies. Or we can see him as Lord and brother. Spend time with him, spend time with his family and take on the traits of the family. That's what the world needs. Who we think Jesus is will have a direct effect on what kind of relationship we will have with him. Whether or not we will allow him to work in us 
and through us. Church, let us invite the Spirit of God to so infiltrate us that it animates our body to love and good works, to pray blessing physically, emotionally, and spiritually on those we diametrically disagree with, on those who even spewed things at us because we associate with the family of God. Our proper response is not militant. It's love. You know how Jesus fought against the government? He went to a cross. That's how he fought in his day. We are in a better position than the scribes because although Jesus healed many, pronounced people to be forgiven, we stand on this side of the resurrection which frames our entire family picture. (laughs) The story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the frame of this family. Don't drift outside of that frame. Don't drift outside of that picture. There's no life there. There's no life there. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much that you have not left it up to us to jump up and down and wave our arms to get your attention so that we can understand what you desire from us. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you came to us to reveal the heart of the Father. And Jesus, we're reminded that if we live in light of the forgiveness that we've been offered, we should be quick to offer that forgiveness to others. We're reminded that if you have given lives hope and joy and a new identity, that that ought to animate our lives as we engage with those who have no identity, who are afraid, who are angry. And so it's my prayer for each of us, starting with myself, First of all, guide us away from those things that stir up anger and hatred and fear in us and draw us to a a community that brings life. Draw us to yourself. And I pray that we would take on more and more of your characteristics, Jesus. That we would extend a hand, that we would turn our cheek, that we would love those who persecute us. And God, however we come in here this morning, however, whatever we've been proclaiming about you this week through the way we live our lives, whatever, whatever burdens we need to lay down, whatever sins we need to leave here today, I pray your spirit would point them out to us and we would leave them at your feet. And as we often say here at Town Center, God, I, I thank you so much that on the other side of our repentance, you are waiting to embrace us. So God, we lay down our hatred this morning. We lay down our anger. We lay down our fear. We want nothing to do with them. They do not bring us life. They steal life. We lay them down at your feet. We pray that in that vacuum, you would replace uh, replace it with joy, with love, with hope, with kindness and patience. This is what the world needs. This is what you give us. May those things animate us this week. And for some of us, that might take a lot of work. It might take a lot of chiseling, and chiseling is painful. But I pray that your spirit would would just even put a kernel in us to start doing that kind of work in us. We confess the ways we've been sucked into the narrative of this world. We, We confess the ways that we've vilified other people throw venom at them to their face behind a a screen or to other people. We confess that we have done these things and we ask your forgiveness this morning. 
May we not only proclaim and talk about peace and joy and hope and identity found in you. May we be conduits of it. May we live it out each day. We thank you for the gospel. Your gospel is more powerful than the narrative of our world right now. Your resurrection is more powerful than the narrative of the world right now. We thank you for the hope and peace and joy. And we thank you for the shield that it gives us, the refuge that it gives us. May we find our peace and our affiliation in Christ. Sustain us by your spirit, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.